0: Welcome to
1: Create New Futures. Thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar.
0: This is Aviv, and welcome to a new episode of Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with thought leaders and with fascinating people, to explore ideas, and to focus on practices that you can use to help you create new futures for yourself, for your team, and for your business. Today, I'm speaking with Doug Gray. Doug is the president of Action Learning Associates and the author of Passionate Action, Five Steps to Extraordinary Success in Life and Work. He's a leadership consultant and executive coach with more than 20 years of experience in helping hundreds of executives and leaders. Doug brings to his work the unique combination of focus on the application of positive psychology to business and with action learning know-how and his adventure racing experience. Doug and I have been speaking for many years and have regularly used our calls as peer coaching opportunities. In my book, Create New Futures, I featured one such conversation in Portal 3, where we explored the what's next ladder, how to create exponential learning, and where I reflected on the conversational bungee jump technique. You will find in this episode's summary notes, the conversational bungee jump excerpt for you to download and apply as a framing technique and tool. In this conversation, you will learn from Doug about getting out of what's comfortable to experience something that's less comfortable about adventure racing and about the three A's model and about growth mindsets, positive psychology, and about the four elements of psychological capital. I know you will find in my conversation with Doug thought-provoking ideas that you will be able to implement right away. Let me know what you like about these early episodes so we can continue to make them even better and richer. Here then, is my conversation with doug so doug it's great to have you here welcome thank you for inviting me delighted let me jump right in by first asking you because you emailed me last night that you are just back from the rockies in colorado what was the reason for your trip
1: and what have you been up to We often jump in, don't we? The reason was to gain perspective and balance. Uh, We have a timeshare in Breckenridge, so I spent 13 days there. Um, And also to reconnect with family and meet with clients, uh, one of whom I didn't know was an expert skier. We had a tremendous time together. And I think mostly to realize that there's humility. Uh, The tree lines above Breckenridge are spectacular. I don't know if you're a skier, but the point is, When we're surrounded by natural grandeur, it's hard to um, ignore. And I think it adds tremendous perspective. So a little downtime, a lot of writing time, tremendous uh, business connection time and and perspective time.
0: And Doug, have you been skiing for many years? I have, yes.
1: Formerly an NCAA coach, which means uh, there's this part of me that wants to always uh, check the snow reports. But in Tennessee, it's really not relevant. (laughs) Because where is home today? Home today is is near Nashville, Tennessee. We've been here right. for
0: 10
1: years.
0: Yep. So I know that uh, since we, we started there, I know you have had many years of fascination with the outdoor, and you've developed a, a passion and um, focus on extreme sports, such as adventure racing. I'm interested... In for you to tell us about, can you recall the earliest memory of you in nature and you discovering and recognizing and appreciating that, that something special is, is happening for you when you're outdoors? And I don't know whether it's in a snowy area or some other kind of wilderness, but can you recall a very early memory that told you, hey, this is where I am at my best?
1: Well, I'm not sure it's where I'm at my best uh, as I age, but it is, in fact, a place where I gain sustenance and energy. And as far as early memories, I I suspect it would have to go back to our family. My father was a a minister turned psychologist, and mom was a social worker and business leader. And my brother and sister are, are one and two years younger, respectfully. So, anyways, we went camping a lot and traveled throughout the country. There's no one particular memory that sticks out, but I. Uh, We'll say that I, as a kid, spent a lot of time outdoors, was active with Boy Scouts and always doing outdoor adventure travel, whether it was whitewater canoeing or flatwater racing or telemark skiing. I was raised mostly in the north, um, Minnesota and South Dakota and New York. But the point, I think, is to get out of whatever's familiar, uh, whatever's more comfortable into some space that's a little bit less comfortable. As an example, that led to a number of summer camp jobs and that led to working for outward bound, uh, a wilderness leadership program which I did for about ten seasons in a number of different places so so what about it is is it the the
0: scenery is it uh, being away from what we know or is it also specifically your fascination with exerting yourself to the edge of your performance Uh, capability
1: in terms of racing and and physical exertion? I think it's some of both, but uh, I'm no longer racing. And I think it's um, representative of the fact that we all have stages in our lives. So I could go to the wilderness for sustenance or perspective, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'll go back to the wilderness and race through it with the goal of completing a 10 day race in five days it's much more uh, of an energetic pace, mm. so I'm no longer seeking what are called checkpoints or racing through a course that's 600 miles. I'm uh, with a team. I'm much more inclined to to go out on my own. I'll bring a journal or I'll record on my phone and I'll reflect on whatever's essential at the time, but the the fact, I think, throughout eternity, we've got, what, 4,500 years of recorded history, is that we've always gone to the wilderness. We've always sought perspective in less familiar places. And it's, it's an ancient habit, um, and I think perhaps it's part of our, our genetic DNA in some way, which is also to say that uh, I've got a supportive wife and children who tolerate me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm running to something. Right rather than running from something. That's wonderful.
0: I know you you just said you're no longer racing, but I I do want to trace a little back in time uh, and for you to share, how did you get into adventure racing? And for for people that will be listening to our conversation that are not familiar with what adventure racing is and what a five or a 10-day type exercise like that is all about, describe well, describe how you got into that and, and then describe what is an, adver- an adventure
1: racing bike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to do in a couple words, so I'll give it a couple sentences. Um, I think the best way to describe it is as, as a microcosm of life, and it's also a metaphor for how teams can interact and excel. So imagine that you and I, if even two other people, are on a team together. So it's a team of four, typically co-ed, And the task is to go from A to B. It might be um, 600 miles. It might be a 10-day expedition race. I've done three of those that were on CBS Sports or featured on CBS Sports. And the point is that we're going to travel through the night. We're going to navigate with a map and a compass only and our collective expertise. And, And the activities will vary depending upon the geography and the season. So we might mountain bike for eight hours and then whitewater paddle for six hours and then do some trail expeditioning say orienteering in the wilderness uh, like a bushwhack type environment and then we might get to a cliff and rappel or climb ascend uh, for three hours and then we might get to what did i miss climbing paddling uh, skiing snowshoeing bicycling mountain biking is common the point is uh to use multi-sport to get from a to b uh this became popularized when the uh what's the name of the fellow who started the survivor tv series he was an adventure racer uh the reality uh, tv guy burnett mark mark burnett right happened to be i think from new zealand or australia where there's a lot of multi-sport athletes and he said there's something extraordinary here. There's something worth capturing on television. So he did in something called the Eco Challenge. And that ran for about eight or nine years on TV. The successor was called Primal Quest. And I did three of those. And most teams do not finish. Uh, There's about a 40% finishing rate. We've certainly finished all three times. And I think the reason is because as a team, there's a captain before the race. There's a, a navigator role who takes primary responsibility for where the heck should we go. There's a person who is uh, often called the horse who carries most of the gear, particularly when someone's tired. Uh, But we always shift team gear as we need to. And all of us are expected to be positive, optimistic members of the team. Well, isn't that a metaphor for how any successful team works? We've got specialized roles. We've got a goal. And amid those roles, the process evolves depending upon the environmental stimuli. If there's a reorganization or market change, then we need to dance in that direction, right?
0: Absolutely. Before I lead the conversation to ask you how you have applied these and and how you journeyed from those kind of um, experiences into action learning and coaching, still in in the adventure uh, racing arena, what's an extreme or life-threatening episode or an experience (laughs) that you could share uh,
1: today, oh, you want the gory stuff okay I do
0: I do <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, perhaps um, the most dramatic example is one that was featured on on um, on CBS with a a tremendous narrative by the actor, Liam Nielsen. Um, back in two thousand and five, there was a race in the Seattle area, which then ended up uh, we started on an island. Um, and then sea kayaked into the mainland and mountaineered and then went up near Mount Baker and traversed around it um, climbing and paddling back down to this island. So it was a 10 day race. Imagine that there are uh, 90 some teams from all over the world. It's very much like the Olympics and Hmm. there are helicopters and camera crews and each team is obliged to have an RV for backup support. And on day four-ish, the lead team um, comprised of uh, Australian and New Zealand teams uh, was way up on a summit in the Cascades, as you know, are uh, very pointed and ancient and dangerous. There's a lot of loose rock. And um, right near sunset, one of those leading team racers died. He uh, tragically uh, descended through a gully found a loose rock, Um, a teammate from above inadvertently dislodged this massive boulder and it killed him. Well, none of us knew this. We were out of those 90 plus teams uh, doing very well. We were placed about 15th uh, at that point. And, and we uh, were astounded. We came near what's called a transition area, a point where you switch from uh, foot travel to bike travel. And there was our RV and our support guy and the race support people said, Uh, the race has been paused. Well, that doesn't happen. So it was a time for reflection. It was a time for existential pause. We knew that our loved ones were tracking us. We had a GPS device at that time, and this is 2005, right? So they were ugly, big boxes that you were obliged to carry on your backpack. So imagine a a big yellow box that's 12 inches by 4 inches by 5 inches, which uh, transmits your location periodically. So I knew that our children who were in elementary school were tracking our performance on the internet. And I knew my wife was certainly tracking us. And I uh, didn't know why the race had paused. Uh, Like any situation in life, there was limited information and access to information. Well, I finally obtained access to a phone. I called my wife and I said, please ignore some of the information you'll see reflected on the website and please ignore the um, rumors. The fact is our team is fine. The four of us are safe and we don't know all the details, but we suspect that there's been an accident on the course. The point of the story, I think, is that that could have jeopardized the sport. It could have caused people to say, this is unbelievable. It's extreme. It's dangerous. Why would anyone in their right minds do this? And it wasn't handled that way. It was handled quite well. So the race directors solicited uh, comments from all the captains of those 90 teams, gathered the data, made an on-the-spot decision that they would carry on the race and stagger a new start from that point. And prior to doing so, there was a period of maybe 12 or 24 hours when we tried to honor the team and the racer who uh, I think was from Australia. And, and the way in which we did that included a bunch of people with roses, uh, black and white and red uh, who chose to walk into the, this beautiful river in the Cascades and uh, say a prayer to whomever we loved and then let those flowers descend down river. And there were other rituals, but that to me is an example of a, Letting go ritual that we sometimes need in our lives to let go of the tragedies in life to move on to the successes. So it's not uh, a gory example that affected me personally, Aviv, but it's close. Right, right. And, and the story
0: contains many uh, important elements. The story talks about operating with limited information.
1: Mm.
0: And perhaps the, the most important element in terms of how it transfers to business and to coaching is making decisions in the moment with limited information. In this case, both the organizational decision of the organizers, but also yourselves through the, the, the race often needing to make in the moment important directional decisions and do uh make those decisions and choices with, with incomplete informations. Mm-hmm. So how do you apply and how do you transfer these into the the work you do is, is the question that I'd like to ask next. But perhaps give us a little bit of background. How did you get into action learning and into coaching and then weave into that the specificity of, of the story and what I'm asking about, which is the, the idea of as leaders as managers as people that lead teams, we often need to be able to make decisions with incomplete information.
1: Yeah, we certainly do. Uh, perhaps all the time. The military has a formula for that, and and I don't want to misquote it, but the gist is if if you've got a third of the, if you think that a third of the data you've got is valid and there's a thirty percent chance of likelihood, then you ought to go for it. I'm not sure that that's accurate, but the gist is the same that we've often got bits of information, and then we have to go for it. Well, uh, so how do we get to where we are? Uh, This whole notion of transference, I think, can be summed up as we've got multiple lives. You do, I do, we all do. And as an an example, I think sometimes our hobbies define us. So I had spent, I mentioned this, uh, a number of seasons in in Outward Bound, working with leaders of various ages, helping them to maximize their strengths and develop those strengths in a wilderness environment. I did this in my 20s and, and 30s seasonally in the summer in Minnesota and uh, Ontario and some in Europe and England, but then in the winters um, also in Minnesota and in Maine and New Hampshire. In the school years, I was teaching at a private schools for 12 years. So it's an example of integrating leaders. Uh, We're we're building leaders and their capacity, whether they're prep school kids or high school kids or adults, on a sailboat off the coast of Maine. It doesn't really matter. I think we need opportunities to face challenges and then we need support for whatever that new behavior might be. So how did that lead to my company? I, I did the, um, the working for other people thing for about 12 years, as I just described in independent schools, uh, We've never met Aviv, but you should know that I am not inclined to wear a tie. It's not my normal (laughs) work environment. So I'd much prefer the informality and opportunity to have customized leadership development. So that led to me running a nonprofit in DC for nine years and then meeting some people who said, Doug, you are a coach. And I said, Really? What's a coach? This was 97 or so. And these were brilliant people, uh, academics and applied consultants. And at that time, there were not very many executive coaching companies. And we pulled our resources, did some work together, and and it led to um, an integrated model that I thought was brilliant at the time. And that, of course, gave me the catalyst to do the work that I always wanted to do. So I I started Action Learning Associates because I liked the methodology. Action does lead to learning. And the methodology includes – time for reflection. You started this by asking about days in Breckenridge. We all need moments of reflection. And after which we decide what we're going to do. And then we cascade the actions into some greater impact. So that's what I've done. I've took a number of certification programs, ran some programs at the University of Maryland College Park for seven years. But uh, the reason I wrote books and the reason I've develop content is because clients have asked me to. The the Passion in Action book, for instance, was uh, a rewriting of another book called Adventure Coaching. And the book publisher said, for the price of a good bottle of wine and and, uh, his conversation with the guy who recommends the book titles for Barnes & Noble online, The only way to get a self-published book in 2008 on that world uh, was to have a great title. So now I've got a title and a purple book that sold some 3,500 copies. Now, that's not a large number. I'd love to serve hundreds of thousands of people and I have over time. But the point of the book and the point of, of developing is to respond to client needs, whatever those needs are. So I did a bunch of leadership coaching and executive coaching at different locations but I never know what the client's agenda is kind of like this call. I really don't know what you're going to ask next. So I'll start the call by asking, what would you like to focus on next? And I'll end the call by asking, so what are you taking away from this conversation that you will do next? You and I have done this for some time. That's right. (laughs) And this started, I think with Doug cold calling Aviv, what eight years ago, maybe and probably probably 10 years ago <laughs> we've never met and the the fact is we've been a catalyst for one another and i think that's what we do isn't it as professional coaches yeah, we yeah share. that's right
0: that's right a fascinating story and some of the details you just shared I'm hearing for the first time so mm-hmm. let me just um point that the 96 97 Time frame for you to, to be pointed in the direction of coaching is an interesting time frame because if we retrace just at a very high level the history of the, the, the coaching arena in business and such, in the 80s, there were no uh, coaching. There were consultants and a variety of other kind of modalities. But essentially, if you said to somebody the word coach, it mostly... Was interpreted in the sports, in various sports arenas. That's right. And then when coaching was brought into business in the early 90s, initially it was brought as a, um, as a remedial intervention. So if somebody was not performing well, they wanted to, HR or somebody else in the company wanted to bring them a, a coach to try to, quote unquote, fix them. That's right. But very quickly, people realized that that was actually the wrong uh, allocation of coaching resources, and that the best way, the best return on investment, was to invest in the best people. Exactly mm. like, you know, the best swimmers in the world, like Phelps and Keri mm. Ledecky and, and others, they have a coach, mm. and so they then discovered that oh well, the the best way and the smartest investment in coaching is to allocate these resources to our best performers and to our top leaders because, and this really follows the whole philosophy that later developed with a strength-focused approach, the strength uh, modalities of, of the many kinds, which in many ways, Doug, between you and I are plays on Peter Drucker's initial insight, which was that you are better off investing in somebody who is very good because it's easier to take somebody who is good and make them excellent or outstanding than trying to take a a poor performer and make them even mediocre. Mm -hmm. So your transition and entering into the coaching arena in the late 90s was exactly the time where coaching was coming into the foreground as a, a modality and as an accepted investment in in small and large companies to help drive, to help catalyze high performers to even uh, greater uh, outcomes and and results. Uh, What a fascinating time to enter that space because you could already or still grandfather yourself into the space. Uh, Great timing to enter the space.
1: I think you're right. Um, I I wouldn't have used the um, Michael Phelps Analogy, because it reflects back on the athletic one, right? Uh, instead, Drucker um, had little currency in the U.S., so he was forced to go abroad to distribute his ideas. One of the most seminal was that that article called "Managing Oneself" in 1999, right in this time frame we we're discussing. And he found so much resistance in the U.S. that he was obliged to go overseas and say, "Hey, wait a minute! There's a systematic approach here to developing oneself, and, and it starts with." Defining what are my strengths and how do I work and what are my values? Where do I belong? Where can I contribute? Critical questions, right? Indeed. Indeed. So
0: so one of the areas that I'd like us to explore together, because I know we we both uh, feel very passionate about uh, that focus, is, is the area of exponential learning. And specifically, how can we design learning experiences that deliver transformational value because of the game-changing insights that they create and also because of the speed of moving from idea to validation of the idea and internalization of the idea and then moving, as as you said, to applying that idea in action. And I describe in my book, uh, Create New Futures, the, the four phases of adult learning where I talk about that phase one is you need to internalize an idea. And phase two, you need to validate that you understood the idea. And phase three is where you run water through the pipe. That is you practicing putting the the idea or the the practice or the insight into some early experimentation so that you begin to build the the behavioral concretizing action of, of that idea. And finally, stage four is that you take ownership of the idea by teaching it and by cascading it throughout your universe with people in your life, with people on your team, and so on. So I think both you and I are always very interested in, in this big question, which is, what are some, some of the important principles or the important practices in terms of how we design learning experiences to deliver and accelerate the, the learning cycle. So tell me, share with us, what are some of the guiding principles that you apply as you design a learning experience?
1: Yeah, happy to. Um, and, and just to reflect back on, on your book, Aviv, I don't think that many people are inclined to believe that they can create a new future, that they're inclined to believe that three steps, five steps, seven steps, whatever the number is, will in fact get them there. There's so much fear sometimes. So it, it's uh, clear to me that there are two, two groups of people, and I only work with the second group. The first group are those with a fixed mindset. We've tried that in this company. It can't be done. I can't learn. Adults can't learn, to which I say uh, that's simply not the case. The other group of people have a growth mindset, and that's the group that you and I choose to work with. It's the only group we'd want to work with. They have to believe that we can learn new things. We can design a new feature, like a new house to step into. And if it's three steps, five steps, or however many, uh, what we need from this consultant is is the accountability. So I'll uh, tell you that I, I use a model that I've used forever called the 3A model because the words begin with A. And it starts with assessments and leads to constructive actions and leads to accountability. So those are the three A's. I can't tell you how many people who say, yeah, I'm a coach. Why? Because I've got a business card that says I'm a coach. And one study recently said there's 40,000 people who self-declare that they are coaches. However, they don't use any validated assessments, which astounds me. And it mortifies um, many people because it it can paralyze us. It's like going to a physician without having your heart rate and your vitals monitored. There's some 15,000 validated assessments. So if we don't use some in this process to look at where is Aviv today and where does Aviv need to go next, then how can we possibly measure our growth? Uh, I'm I'm speechless. So I commonly uh, use something that's behaviorally focused. DISC is very common. Hogan is very common. I'll use something that's a little bit more subjective, like an emotional intelligence survey. And lately, I've been using something that focuses on positive psychology, like the psychological capital questionnaire. The reason is that those four tend to um, be very useful for clients. So what does that lead to? That's the assessment. It leads to actions. When you and I have our calls, we'll commonly end with, so what are you inclined to do next, or what are you taking away from this conversation that you will want to update me on a month from now? That kind of accountability is so rare. I can't tell you how many leaders will do the equivalent of running two-thirds of a marathon and stop because they think they've completed a marathon. Well, uh, there's sloppiness in the coaching and consulting field. One way to rectify that is to provide action plans, digital transparency, software so that people can look at it. But the other one, I think, is what you and I try to do regularly and that's to be truth bearers, sort of standard bearers. That phrase, speaking truth to power, is really the most critical one, not because we have anything profound to say sometimes, but because senior leaders need external consultants. We're the only ones who can provide objective perspectives on what's going on. I'll give you an example from yesterday morning. A senior leader at a Fortune 100 healthcare company who is just been reassigned twice as much responsibility as she had before is tasked with some phenomenal initiatives from a boss that isn't uh, a good match for her. So her primary agenda yesterday was how do I manage up? How do I provide two things? She needs to provide the structure for this person. And she needs to ascertain or assess what are the fears that could be motivating this person right now, because fears are so prevalent in our interactions, so that she can respond appropriately to those fears and be be more proactive. Well, that's a conversation about structures and fears that she really can't have with any of her colleagues, and she certainly can't have with her boss who's in the C-suite, and yet she needs to have. So I think that's the value that we provide is constructive actions, model accountability so that we can support one another moving ahead. That 3A model has served me well. I'm not sure where it came from, but I've adopted it. Make sense? Great. Oh, absolutely. Let me rethread
0: uh, through a number of the things uh, you mentioned. You started by talking about fixed mindset and growth mindset. So in your experience can people that are prone to fixed mindset change, uh, learn to embrace growth mindset? Is, is this a changeable property or this is a given? What, what's your
1: experience? It can be changed, particularly when people are threatened or fearful that they're going to lose their jobs. When your back's against the wall, we are resilient species. We can do anything. So yes. However, we've got to on a genetic and environmental propensity to respond in a certain way. If I were to say, Aviv, let's go ski a double black trail tomorrow at Breckenridge, you would say, I would say,
0: <laughs> I'll be watching you from a nice <laughs> position.
1: <laughs> right. Fixed mindset. Appropriately fixed mindset to that specific behavior change. Appropriate. Right. If I were to say, Aviv, let's have a lively conversation tomorrow about how you might uh, provide more value to your customers, you would say, Oh totally absolutely we learn <laughs> through conversation right so in those two examples we we can choose either a growth mindset to activity a or activity b or a fixed mindset if it's in our personal best interests
0: okay so so let me recapture what you're proposing first of all is the recognition that there are fixed mindset and growth mindset mm-hmm. the second point is that those can interchangeably appear in the same person within a different situation, so in some way these are situationally applied yes. or contextually triggered yes. and and the third is that we all uh, perhaps carry you call it uh, genetic and environmental propensity. I would also propose psychological and perhaps spiritual aptitudes that influence our tendency to adopt and embrace a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And the important realization, especially for me since I bring to the table a strong passion, a a very strong conviction that that we all have a developmental prospect. We can all choose to embrace development. And in that sense, we can all choose to move and embrace uh, a growth mindset, not just when we are threatened not just when uh, we are at a crisis point where there is no other option, when we find ourselves in the corner with our back to the wall. We may choose to actually change from a point of success where things are going great and we choose to embrace the success and turn around and say, you know what? I have now earned the right to uh, reflect on everything that I do, download or or reconfigure a new operating system and begin to operate at an even higher level than I have so far. That's an example of choosing a growth mindset and acting from within a growth mindset or what I call in the book a, a mental model that is prepared to embrace a new future and create a new future rather than having to uh, be faced with your back to the wall uh, with no options.
1: Exactly. I love seeing that phrase in, in there. It made me think of Senge's use of the word mental models, because he would very quickly say that they describe natural patterns and how we choose to act is really the key. Let me anchor this with some other research. In the 90s, When I went to graduate school um, at at Dartmouth, the notion of behavior was 50-50, 50% 50 environmental, 50% genetic. What is it that causes Doug to do whatever Doug does? Well, what a limiting view. At the time, I thought, maybe this is because academics can't decide or they can't agree. So I, uh, at that point, decided not to pursue a doctorate. And I went off and did applied psychology in, in the environments that I've described previously. Subsequently, I've gone back to school, and one of the things that fascinates me is that some 40% is what's called our choice point. This is uh, based on some research that's been validated again and again. Uh, think of it, if you've got a pie, as, as uh, why does Doug do what Doug do, does? Well, there's 50% genetic propensity, but there's only a 10% environmental In other words, if I get this windfall or I have this opportunity or this manager or this boss or whatever, the 40% is the remaining, it's called a set point, that is where the domain of free will or choice or intentional action or deliberate mastery plays out. This is where you and I swim. This is the
0: water we love. And that that includes the aggregated tracks or traces of your choices and how these choices designed or or rather influenced or imprinted uh, your mental and psychological topography and and the map of meaning with which you navigate in the world, correct? Correct.
1: And and I'm encouraged by that. I hope you are. Isn't it amazing to think that up to 40% of our future can be designed much like your book describes? Right. And the question
0: is, to what degree do we apply ourselves to these 40% uh-huh. In, <laughs> in my mental model, I have earned the right to um, have more than 40% uh-huh. uh, of choice point. Uh-huh. Call it a spiritual belief, call it a choice point by itself.
1: Yes.
0: Um, but but I, I, I recognize and I hear you about the, the research. So tell me how do you uh, bring these insights to the coaching conversation? And and specifically, let me ask you, what is the moment you look for in a coaching conversation?
1: Wow, two different questions. The moment I look for is that moment of silence. When the gestalt breaks... Uh, you and I have experienced this. I, I think when I ask a question or provide a perspective or lead someone to consider something they've not considered before, and they pause, I think that's the most profound moments we can get together.
0: Mm. What What do you then do in that pause, in that silence? How do you breathe into it? <laughs>
1: Did I ever tell you I spent nine years working at a Quaker school? <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. No. So, so tell me about the Quaker school and, and tell me about the, the discipline and know-how you,
1: you brought from the Quaker experience into your work today. Yeah, I'd be happy to. They're, I think um, quick to say uh, that silence is when we're closest to God whatever our divine spirit or connection is silence and collective silence is what happens in a meeting for worship or a meeting for business. I think, uh, that the key Quakers don't always agree, right? There's a fair amount of passive aggression and such, but they do agree on one phrase, which is, there's that of God in all of us. So the idea of, uh, communion or friendship, occurs when you and I meet, and if one is filled with the spirit, then I've witnessed this, people might quake with that spirit. Well, you know that Quakers are instrumental in leading to social justice, women's rights to vote, um, things as ancient as, uh, price tags on, on, uh, products in Philadelphia in the 1800s, because if a wealthy guy walked in, they would provide a different price prior to the Quaker movement than if uh, another person walked in who wasn't as well-dressed. So they argue for justice is ancient. Uh, And I think in a similar way, social justice can happen in our coaching work. When, for instance, someone tells me that they want to manage up in a respectful way, at the same time that they want to redesign healthcare platforms in a consumer-based culture, wow, that leads to uh, a sacred place of of honoring her agenda and co-designing possibilities. And I think that's really what we do. Sometimes I'll suggest something or ask something, and she'll say, that's exactly it. Do you have any information on that? (laughs) I'll send something or she'll do something. Other times, a client will say, "Um, that won't work because. And then, of course, I'll ask, well, what might work? And we'll come to that place. No one else can do that. In the older days, we would have more of a hierarchical model of, of leadership. You should do this, X and Y's. Well, we've evolved. It's a complex world filled with diverse solutions, and every disruptive market that I've witnessed does this innovative work of crossing boundaries.
0: Right. I, I right. That, and you know, and one know. of the things you're sharing there in this example, in this for instance, is that often in the coaching, consulting, head uh, in that position, you get to facilitate and help navigate and negotiate the personal, the the leader's own agenda and how that conflicts or not, and and how can it be reconciled with the the corporate and the the for-profit and accelerated profit agenda and how to honor both needs and both requirements That is often material in the coaching conversation. I think that's the implicit message in in your example.
1: It is very much. yep. Let me you this maybe with with four um, – this is a little bit nerdy, a little bit of an academic model, but I think it will make the point easily. If if we think of human capital as – well, let's back up. If we think of financial capital, the net worth of someone – as a measure of their success or their impact. That's a resource-based view of capital, but it's limited. Uh, just as your net worth will increase over your lifetime, let's hope it will depreciate in the last 24 months of your life as you invest it in your own health or choose to give it away. The second example is human capital. The people um, or your your KSAs, your knowledge, skills and abilities, the things that enable you to do that job as an expert leader. Well, that will appreciate over time, but then depreciate as you forget things and natural ontogeny as as we age Uh, the third form of of resource-based capital is uh, social capital the people that you know who have reinforced you and helped you to get to where you are so we've got human capital social capital and financial capital all of which are resource-based views of capital well if you look at HBR articles on the talent war, they take on this notion that that's all there is. And, and I can assure you that's not all there is. There's this fourth uh, view of capital called psychological capital, which is infinite. And thankfully, it is. And this is where you and I need to dance. And I think this is where the greatest leaders need to dance. Psychological capital is based on four constructs that together are incredibly impactful. And a way to remember this is is HERO, H-E-R-O. Hope is the will and the way. How do I imagine a better future? This is sort of like Creative New Futures 2.0. This could be your next book or next chapter maybe. Who knows? Hope, efficacy or confidence, the extent to which you think you can do the job. Resilience, the extent to which you can get back to the previous state place or beyond that place, Breakthrough. Uh, is is a tremendous example of psychological capital and being taught to our American military and their loved ones. And the fourth is optimism, H-E-R-O. Optimism is a generalized positive affect. Well, these are infinite and dynamic. In fact, hero is a construct that can be measured. And because it's infinite, the extent to which Aviv has a higher psychological capital score than Doug will redefine your capacity as a leader. I predict right that this will uh, be used throughout our assessments in the next five years.
0: Right, right. Uh, all of those elements are inexhaustible. Mm. Uh, for some reason, you call it psychological capital. They represent to me a, an even broader construct than, than the idea of psychological capital, it's psychological, mental, emotional, and spiritual capital, uh, all bucketed in, in one, but that's psychological capital works. Before we we get back to this, you spoke about something else that I I don't want to lose, I I want to capture um, and, and bring forward because I want you, if you can, create a bridge for me from the Quaker's experience of being present to silence and your journey and application of positive psychology that you're talking to right now and the importance of flow in that framework. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that bridge and how that bridge is formulated in your own experience and how you apply it in your work.
1: Right. You've got a handful of stories that are reflected in your chapters in the portals. Each of those portals is a view of the world and each of those views reflects some conversations you've had that have been instrumental right correct you just cited three portals that are uh, representative of some of the instrumental forces in Doug's life okay my hope is that this conversation will be useful to somebody else who will ask themselves well what are a handful of the portals that have been instructive for me and they might write them down and it could be that ancient question, what, was, what did I learn from my 20s? What did I learn from my 30s? What did I learn from my 40s? And I'm 56, so I'll ask, what did I learn from my 50s? Or a better question, who did I serve in my 20s? Who did I serve in my 30s? Who did I serve in my 40s? Who do I serve in my 50s? And who do I want to serve in my 60s? I was recently asked to write my mission statement, and it hasn't changed. It's always been to leverage my strengths and serve others. So if I were to think about how do I leverage my strengths and serve others, I need things like assessments. I need feedback from everybody in my world, and I need to apply them to their agendas, not Doug's, to their agendas. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, absolutely. In other words, the solution to our own needs, our own and our own questions, can often be found in that pivot that you framed, which is by looking to discover who and what we serve, and in what way can we serve those people, those situations, those needs, those causes, and the the mental model that is invited by this reframe through this pivot is this, I- this idea of agency and, and what we can be an agency for. Because the moment I embrace that question or my, my reframe on Kennedy who said, uh, ask not what uh, your country can help you, ask how you can help your country. Yes. Well, the reframe on that is ask not where is the answer to your problem, ask where are the problems that you may become the answer for because of what you know, because of your devotion, because of your brilliance, because of your creativity. And, and what that is about is about the, the idea of agency that, that as, a, as a manager, as a leader, as a human being, as a parent, as a community member, whenever you step, you step up to support a cause, to be in service to something, Mm -hmm. you become an agency for that need and you become a portal for that intelligence or the intelligence that seek to
1: address that need. So that's a beautiful invitation. Right. And some people don't use the word portals in this way. Uh, You know, it's a star Trek thing or it's a cruise ship thing. What's a portal really? Is it a time thing? Am I transporting? Uh, But if you were to change agency to uh, a more active question, how can I be an agent of leadership? Right. Or, or my vision of what, who I want to serve in my 60s. It reframes everything, right? And now I'm stepping forward or toward that future state that uh, is meaningful. I think the word agency can be academic and, and uh, turn people off, just as the word portal can turn some people off.
0: Well, thank you for uh, suggesting a simplified language that's attractive for some. Mm. some will be very attracted to the idea that we can each choose the portal we will engage in today the portal of needs and the portal of opportunities
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and since we are talking about portals your very kind review that you posted on the amazon book page mm-hmm. uh, where you've written and i'm i'm quoting I was delightfully surprised that Aviv has written such an extraordinary book. The format with twelve portals that can be read independently can be a course in strategic consulting or applied meditations, or how to design your better future. and you nice add and, say,
1: huh?
0: <laughs> and, and you add and you say Aviv's provocative content can be applied at both organizational, and individual uh, levels. If you want to rethink how you develop relationships, then I strongly recommend this book. So first of all, thank you. Of course. Second,
1: second, tell me how you meant apply meditations. <laughs> Literally. So I have a sunroom in the back of my house because the morning sunlight is brilliant. And guess what I did for several days in the morning? <laughs> I used your book as a meditative tool. I frequently take notes in books and, uh, and, and did so, and then I, I write in the back the page number and uh, partic- particular aspects of it that are relevant. So I, I noted here on page 108, the notion of self-organizing, how to, how do I value work and structure, can be used and is sort of similar to the 3A model that I described earlier of assessment and action and accountability. And I also noted page 127, the economics of learning uh i I used that later in the day, actually, <laughs> with the client we don 't often think about uh, designing a better future, and what I love about your book is that if if one were to isolate a chapter, it could be used as a case study for h b r or any any anyone who wanted to view the world in that way. I like that you 've got anecdotes with that are personally re- revealing. Uh, I learned a bunch about you, but also that reflect um, critical ideas from other people. And, and that theme, that general theme of, well, are you in fact having the conversations you need to be having? You and I are having a conversation now. Well, how is it serving Aviv? How is it serving Doug? How is it serving anyone listening? And I hadn't thought about the essential nature of conversations as a tool for sharpening one another. But I think you're right on. So it's what, three, four weeks ago since I've read this, but since then I've been mindful of who am I choosing to have conversations with and how am I presenting myself in the most positive way I can to help them imagine a better future. There's a lot of fearful, frightened people and, uh, and all of us. Need to focus on a more positive, better future. So, thanks for writing it, man. Thank you, Doug. Mm-hmm. And um,
0: you also speak there about relationships, uh, and and I want to bring this together with your three A model and your focus on accountability. Mm. With those, for me, how do you bring how do you bring accountability to your learning? Mm -hmm. And how do you bring the accountability of that learning into the relationships that are most important?
1: Well, I'll answer it in two ways, for myself and for my clients. So for myself, I'm an accountability nut. Uh, As a former athlete, I have spreadsheets on my office door. I have my P&L posted there. I have a list of passionate actions by month, uh, things like the Breckenridge trip things that are important to me. I have uh, a list of prospects and uh, projects that I intend to complete by certain times. And those three sheets are there in a, I don't bring clients here, but I uh, have occasionally had conversations with our family. My wife and our daughters are in their 20s. And they'll say, Daddy, what's going on here? What's this project all about? And that's one level of personal accountability. But I think a better one is what do clients need? And and there's probably two subsets of this. One is what does the individual client need and then what does the buying agent or the organization need? So at an individual level, I'll often provide uh, a summary of notes, my notes. And I know some coaches are lazy and choose not to do this, but I'm different. So I'll send notes to them every other month that state we met on such and such a time, your possible takeaways from that call were this, this, and this, and our next uh, meeting is whatever. And it might be, you know, after two months, it might be four uh, sessions, say every other week. But the point is this provides an accountability summary for that client of what I think they're working on. It doesn't matter really what I think. This is for, for them to consider. The second example is more organizationally. Buying agents should never know what the confidential agenda is uh, between us, just like one shouldn't know your conversations with your attorney or your physicians. Uh, However, they do want to know things like coaching frequency, key themes. It's easy enough to track that using some software. And to provide that data back, here's the percent spend or percent complete. Uh, I also use a, a very simple chart with at least two action plans. Here's the behavior that uh, on time one and time two that we want to focus on, and here's how we're going to measure change, whatever the milestones might be and whatever the behavioral outcomes might be. I'm here to tell you, Aviv, not very many coaches do this. It's It's not only sloppy, I think it undermines the professional capacity of what coaching can be. So, end of sermon, but... That's, that's uh, one way in which I model accountability.
0: Glad I asked you. I know you have passion and, and you, bring to, you bring accountability to accountability. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that's yeah, great. Yeah. We are actually out of time, believe it or not. So I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll do a step two at, at some point. But as we uh, bring this great conversation to, to lending, what are some parting thoughts, parting wisdom or call to action that you want
1: to offer? Thanks for asking. I think we need to be more mindful of who we have intentional conversations with. I'm not talking about the random transactional conversations, but the intentional ones we design in our lives that help us to grow. I often tell people, I need six people in my world to help me sharpen the saw. You've been one of the six. I joke that I sometimes need more coaches than others, (laughs) but it's sort of true. The reason I questioned your example earlier of Michael Phelps is because every senior leader I work with also needs six. Now, I'm not beholden to the number six, but I think we all need to be open to and intentional about who those six could be. Maybe that's a takeaway for anybody listening to this. Pick your six, ask them to have a regular periodic call, and even if you never meet them, just as you and I have never met, know that that person will sharpen you in some ways that might surprise you. That's that? awesome.
0: That's great. Uh, great advice and, and great call to action. Doug, where can uh, people find you uh, sure. on the Internet, and,
1: and uh, how can people access your work? There's a bunch of stuff at action-learning.com. There's some riveting videos on YouTube by the same name. Uh, but I think the best would be uh, in conversation. Give me a call. When people are interested in working with a coach, you should be careful. Uh, vet them. Just as you vet your accountant, give them a call.
0: Great. And we'll have all the, those links on the summary notes of this episode. Thank you uh, very much, Doug. This has been a a great discussion with you today. Look forward to uh, catching up with you sometime soon uh, on another call.
1: And we won't record that one, and we'll get into Aviv's agenda on that day. I look forward to it.
0: Here we are. We've landed this Create New Futures journey safely, and it's your time to take action. Here are a few steps you can take right away and practice and apply this week. First, get outside to rejuvenate yourself in nature and to gain a new perspective. I run and swim in the ocean daily. Find what works best for you, get active and get comfortable in the less familiar. Second, ask yourself what conversations you need to create and what outcomes you hope to facilitate. Be intentional about your conversations. Third, practice applying growth mindsets. Release and let go of the fixed mindset that hold you back from adventures you are ready to embark on. Do not give in to fear. Fortify yourself and take confident steps forward. You are the agent of tomorrow. Embrace it to enable a new future to find you. One more thing. You can reach me directly by phone and on email to explore how I can help you and your team create new futures. See you next time!